Praise the Lord, Eastwind family. It is such a joy and a privilege to join you online this week for some Bible teaching on the subject of doctrine, the beautiful truths of Scripture that impact our lives, our destinies, and our eternity. And I am so honored to share this time with you. Congratulations to Pastor David and Sister Amy on their anniversary and also to Bishop and Sister Myers on their anniversary. I mean, these people know how to do it up. All February weddings within spitting distance of Valentine's Day. It's amazing. So congratulations to your leadership. Uh, You know already that you are served by a stellar first family at East Wind and it's such a joy and an honor to call them my friends. I want to get right into our subject today. Um, We're talking about something that I like to call the way. And uh, you'll see why in just a couple of moments. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he said, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. Isaiah spoke of a time when there would be a way of holiness, a path that we could follow. And one modern paraphrase of that last phrase, it says, It's impossible to get off this road if you follow this road. Wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. God wanted to make sure that humanity knew how to establish a relationship with him. That's not just a phrase from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so I want to make it very plain at the outset. Long before there were ever terms like Christian or Pentecostal or apostolic, long before any of those terms existed, the early church, they simply referred to themselves as the way. Luke uses that term about a half a dozen times in the book of Acts. And as we've just seen, the idea wasn't original with them. Rather, it came from the words of Jesus himself. Now, it's pretty obvious that the way is an exclusive term. It's the way. The emphasis is it's the only way. There's not five or ten or 25 ways. There's just the way to God. It's pretty exclusive. And that's why those early Christians were persecuted and sometimes even called heretics in that first century. And it's much the same today. Because there are not two or five or ten or twenty-five ways to God. There is only one way, and it is the way that we find in his word. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this term used. Uh, Saul, when he was a persecutor of the church, the Bible says in Acts 9, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest. He was getting documentation, permission to persecute the church. He desired him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. Now watch this, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound uh, unto Jerusalem. 
What a turnaround Saul of Tarsus experienced. He became the Apostle Paul through a miraculous moment on the Damascus Road. And years later, when he stands in custody on trial, he says this, This I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul said, I do believe the law and the prophets. I do believe the scriptures that I was brought up with. However, I have found the way. It's a way that others call heresy. It's a way that others argue with and persecute and slander and malign. But this is the way that I worship the God of my fathers. The gospel message, brothers and sisters, is how our lives are changed by God's power. Paul said this to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it's to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first. It came to the Jewish people first, but also to the Greek. Thank God the gospel came to everybody else. It is the power of God. Now, the gospel found in the scripture. I'm not talking about what people casually refer to in the various denominations of Christianity today. I'm talking about the gospel that we find in the pages of the Holy Bible. The gospel is not the gospel if you take away from it or if you add to it. It will not work if you do that. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8 that those who mix God's ideas uh, with men's ideas, God's message with the message of men, they are creating actually a perverted gospel. And Paul says something strong and startling. He says, though we or an angel from heaven... If you hear anybody preaching any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now he's referring to a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers of Paul's day, they didn't deny Jesus Christ. They merely changed the plan of salvation preached by his apostles. It's a very dangerous thing spiritually. And Paul said they are accursed. They are working against the purpose of God. It is my strong conviction that Jesus Christ would be angered by many of the gospel messages that are being preached today. Not because they're not preached by a a personable preacher, not because they're not preached with clarity, In fact, they're all too clear. He would be angered because many of the quote-unquote gospel messages that are preached today lack nearly all the major points that Jesus and his apostles preached on. So they're really not gospel messages at all. There are now in America as many variations on the plan of salvation as there are denominations. And that, friends, is a logical and theological nightmare. 
And you'll hear this everywhere in North American Christianity. Well, we'll just fix that problem. We'll say this. We're all going to the same place anyway. So let's just forget doctrine and love Jesus. I've heard that over and over. And I know you have. The problem with that approach is simple. It is dead wrong. There are not two or 10 or 20 ways to be saved. There is only the Bible way to be saved. Well, Pastor Raymond, isn't that kind of arrogant? You're saying that you are right and everybody else is wrong. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the Bible is right and everybody else is wrong. What matters, especially when it comes to the gospel, to establishing our personal relationship with God, what matters is not my opinion or your opinion or some pastor's opinion. Only God's opinion matters. We hear a phrase today around Christendom that is very common. Accept the Lord as your personal savior. I have a couple of problems with that. First of all, the idea that Jesus is a personal savior, that you kind of custom make him into the savior that you choose. That's actually quite offensive to me. And I think to God, but the bigger challenge is this. The phrase, accept the Lord as your personal savior is not found anywhere in scripture. It's not alluded to. There's nothing that could be mistaken for that. The issue in scripture is not that we accept God. The issue is if we will obey God's word, then he will accept us. It's like Paul said in Ephesians 1 and 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. It's not that I accept Jesus. It's that if I will obey his word, Jesus will accept me. So there's only one salvation message. It's the way. Regardless of what various denominations or preachers say. And no, it's not that we are right and they are wrong. It's that the Bible is right. And anyone that disagrees with God's word, they are wrong. So in the time that we share together this week, I want to uh, reinforce this idea that we know the way the word gospel that we talk about in scripture gospel is from an Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, and it means God message or good story. So we use a transliterated term. We say it's the good news. The gospel is good news. And we use that in place of a Greek word, euagilion. And, and, and we have a slight misunderstanding. Our understanding is correct, but it's incomplete. We usually think of it as meaning only the good tidings themselves. The good news is what we know from the scripture that Jesus did on our behalf. That's how we think of the gospel. However, in the Greek language, the word euagelion actually signifies, quote, a present given to one who brought good tidings, or, quote, a sacrifice offered in thanksgiving for such good tidings having 
come. You see, the word euagileon, it comes from Roman times when a messenger uh, came into town and spread the news of uh, a victory that had been won by an army on a battlefield. When that message was brought, sacrifices of thanksgiving were offered. A party broke out in that Roman town or city because they were responding to the good news that had been brought to them. They did something in response to the message that had come to them. Euagileon is a circular word. It's not just that the good news comes to us from the scripture. It's what we do once we hear the good news. So I could say it this way. The gospel is not only the message of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the good news. But you've got to complete the circle. Euagileon is a circular word. Gospel is a circular concept. What are you going to do now that God has given you the good news? So it's not just the good news. It's also our response to the good news having come. In other words, it's not the gospel until you've obeyed it. It's not the gospel until you've responded to it. That's when the gospel becomes the gospel for you and in your life. The gospel message that we read about in scripture It has three components that work together. And that's where I'd like to spend some of our time. John, who lived the longest of all the apostles, and he writes these words right at the end of the first century when all kinds of false doctrines are rising up and he's combating some of those. He writes this, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. Notice John has just introduced to us three elements, three components of the gospel, blood, water, and spirit. And he continues, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word, and the Holy ghost. And these three are One, that's what we call the oneness message. And then he says, and there are three that bear witness in earth. Same three elements, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three are not one, but he says this, these three agree in one. In other words, these three work together to accomplish our salvation. There are three that bear witness, the spirit, And the water and the blood. And these three agree in one purpose. And this is why as you look through the pages of scripture, you will see these three elements over and over again. Let me give you a couple of examples. There were three elements involved in the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt on the night of the Passover. First of all, they were instructed to put blood on the doorpost of their houses. Then God led them out of Egypt and took them through the water of the Red Sea. And finally, a supernatural pillar of cloud by day and fire by night led them through the wilderness away from Egypt, the slave kingdom. 
So in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, you see these same three elements, blood, water, and spirit. Exodus chapter 12, these were the instructions. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The first element of their salvation, their deliverance from Egypt was the blood. But then Paul looks back from the vantage point of 1 Corinthians, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers, our ancestors, they were under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. He says, our forefathers in ancient Israel, they had two baptisms. They had a cloud baptism, a spirit baptism, and they had a sea baptism, a water baptism. And he's using this to teach the gospel from the vantage point of the New Testament. Look what he says. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, that supernatural cloud, and in the sea, that water of the Red Sea. So in the deliverance of Egypt, from Egypt, of Israel, you see three elements, blood, water, and spirit. And then if you go a little further in the pages of the Old Testament, you'll come to the plan for the tabernacle. And there were three pieces of furniture that were involved in atonement in the tabernacle. There were three other pieces of furniture involved in worship and daily sacrifice, but these three pieces of furniture were actually involved in atonement. And they uh, were arranged in a straight line in the tabernacle. The brazen altar the brazen laver, and the Ark of the Covenant. These three pictures, uh, these three furniture, pieces of furniture were pictures of the blood that was shed on the brazen altar. And then the priest would move on from that bloody sacrifice on the brazen altar, and he would immerse his hands in the water of the brazen laver to wash. And then one day a year, if you follow that in a straight line, all the way to the other end of the tabernacle, you come to the Ark of the Covenant and the great day of atonement when the high priest would go in behind the veil into the very Shekinah presence of God. Those three pieces of furniture arranged in a straight line through the building and the courtyard of the tabernacle. They pictured these same three elements of salvation, blood, water, and spirit. It's amazing when you follow the parallels through the pages of Holy Scripture. Isaiah said, this is a way, this is the way that you won't err therein if you'll follow it and study it and love it and obey it. Now, this is exactly why when you come to the pages of the New Testament and Paul begins to define the gospel message that he preached, he says this, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He says, this is what I preached unto you, and this is what you've received, and this is how you stand before God, wherein you stand, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. Paul said, don't leave this, don't waver from it, don't stray from this, because it's this gospel message that saves you. 
He said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and how he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And we see it right there in Paul's writing. We see that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Death, burial, and resurrection. The parallel is obvious. Blood, water, burial, and spirit. Blood, water, spirit. It's everywhere. These are the three that bear witness in obeying the gospel. And that's why Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in the first church service of all of church history, the first time an apostolic preacher ever gave an altar call to a question, what must we do? What shall we do? Here's what Peter said. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And then you need to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of of the Holy Ghost. Notice what Peter does in this altar call on the day of Pentecost. He said, you need to repent. You need to die to your old life. You need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will do what you can do, if you will repent and you will be baptized, God will do what only he can do. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Do you see it? Peter preached the same gospel that Paul just told us about. He said the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you apply that gospel message by dying to your old life in repentance, by being buried in water in the name of Jesus, and by receiving the Spirit of God, the gift of the Holy Ghost into your life. It is the same three elements throughout the Word of God. It is an amazing message that we have to preach. It changes lives every day from the inside out. And it allows us to have a relationship with God and to have a home in God's eternal heaven. It is a powerful, powerful truth of the scriptures. I would argue that the gospel is the most important message found in your Bible. You can get some other things wrong. You can have differences on prophecy and all kinds of understanding of different scriptural principles. And we can debate those and we can talk about those. And we can change all kinds of viewpoints on those over a lifetime. But there's one message you cannot afford to mess up. And that is the gospel message that puts you in the kingdom of God. Please notice the three parts of the gospel message. These three components that make up the way to God. Jesus died on the cross. That was an act of men. They crucified him. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. That was an act of men. They took his lifeless body down and they wrapped it and they put him in a grave. An act of men. But on Easter Sunday morning, when the Lord Jesus came out of that tomb under his own power, brothers and sisters, that was not an act of men. That was an act of God. 
And in the very same way, when you repent of your sins, that is an act of men. That is your action. That is your decision. That is your choice to ask God for forgiveness of your sins. Repentance. When you are baptized in the name of Jesus, that is also an act of men. You ask pastor to baptize you. He's human. You're human. That's an act of men. Now it's a a physical act that has spiritual consequences, but it's still an act that you can obey. It's an act of men. But let me tell you something. When God fills you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you begin to speak in other tongues, that's not an act of men. That's an act of God. That is something that only God can do. So I say it to you again, because perhaps you're new at Eastwind, this great apostolic church. You need to make sure that you have obeyed the gospel, that you yourself have repented of your sins. You've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission, for the washing away of your sins, and that you have been filled with the beautiful baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. There is nothing like it. No wonder the early Christians called it the way. There is no other way to God. I'd like to talk about these three elements in turn during our time together this week. And first, of course, I'd like to talk about repentance. Repentance is the first action step that we take toward salvation. You see, because we have a sinful nature and because we've committed sinful acts, It is absolutely essential that we repent. You can't get to God. You can't get anything from God until you approach him with an act of repentance, with a repentant heart. Now, some people have a little bit of a misconception here. They they think, well, I've done sinful deeds, therefore I am a sinner. I would tell you on the authority of the word of God, that's backwards. It's not because you've done so many sinful things that you're now considered a sinner in God's sight. That's backwards. You see, that's where we get people to say, well, I'm a good person. I'm at least as good as somebody else. Because they think it's all about sinful acts that they commit. It's actually backwards to that. See, you were born a sinner. And because you are born a sinner, you have a sinful nature. And because you have a sinful nature, that's why you commit sinful deeds. So it really doesn't matter in God's sight whether you commit only one sinful deed or a million sinful deeds. You were born in sin. You were born with a sinful nature. And that's why you're a sinner in the sight of God. It has actually little to do with your specific uh, infractions of God's law. It has more to do with the nature that you were born with. Because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Now, repentance is not penance. Penance is something entirely different. Penance is doing acts of devotion uh, required by a priest often. And that's to receive absolution for sins. That is a man-made 
idea. That is a religious idea that they did not get from the pages of the word of God. So repentance is not penance. It's not trying to do enough good to offset your bad deeds. It's not doing something to merit some kind of favor in God's sight. Penance is merely a religious tradition. But brothers and sisters, repentance. Now that's powerful. Isaiah said this. We are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind, they just take us away. They take us out of God's sight. They take us away from a relationship with him. Everything that we do that we think is a good deed, that we think is righteous, that we think is religious in God's sight, it's just filthy rags. So when I say to you repentance is essential for salvation, I'm uttering a foundational Bible truth. Repentance is ground zero in your relationship with God. Yes, God wants to save us. Yes, God loves the whole world. Yes, God loves every sinner. But he requires us to respond to that love by turning from sin and turning to him. Jesus said this, I tell you, no, but accept you repent, you shall all likewise perish from the lips of Jesus himself. Unless you repent, you will perish in sin. So repentance is powerful. And I want to address some of my apostolic brothers and sisters. For you, what I'm teaching is a little bit of review. You've already experienced what the Bible refers to as the new birth, being born again. But let me tell you that repentance is very powerful. And as apostolic people, we cannot ignore or undervalue the experience of repentance. Repentance is why some of your friends who've never been baptized in Jesus' name yet, Having not received the Holy Ghost yet, never spoken with tongues yet, it's why even though all they have done is repentance, all they've done is that, and yet they have still had a major change in their lives. No, they're not all all the way there yet. Uh, No, God's not finished with them. No, there's still more for them to obey in Scripture, but they have experienced something that is undeniable and powerful. So please hear me. The reason you see that in some of your friends that may go to some other kind of church, it's because that real repentance in and of itself is powerful. But repentance is not a dead end. Repentance is not a stop sign. Repentance is not a conclusion. Repentance is not the whole package. It is powerful in and of itself, but there's more. But repentance is where it all begins. And it's so important for us to remember that our repentance must be sincere and genuine before the Lord. In the New Testament, the Greek word that gives us the word repentance is metanoia. 
And metanoia is defined as an inner change of attitude that leads to an outward change of behavior. A lot of people today, they talk about, well, I've got Jesus in my heart. And I always want to shake them a little bit and say, you know, that sounds suspiciously like a hostage situation to me. You've got Jesus in your heart, but your life doesn't show that he lives there at all. You see, real repentance is an inner change of attitude that always leads to an outward change of behavior. And that's why John the Baptist, when he was preaching about repentance, he said, bring forth therefore fruits, evidence, meat for repentance. John said, I want to see it in your life. I want to see it in your actions that your repentance is genuine. And so this is the New Testament word for repentance, metanoia. We, we also get another modern word from uh, that root, uh, and that is metamorphosis. When a caterpillar crawls in to a cocoon, spins a cocoon, and then emerges much later as a butterfly, it's a totally different kind of a creature by the time it goes through that metamorphosis. And, and so repentance is like that. Repentance begins a change in you that, that starts that transformation into becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it is such a beautiful and powerful experience. So I, I, I know the Greek word metanoia. It, it also means a turning away from sin. And so we preach that all the time, that repentance is Turning your back on sin. Repentance is walking away from sin. Repentance is an about face and walking the other way. And that's beautiful. But one day I got thinking, you know, now that's the New Testament word for repent. It comes from metanoia. But there's times in the Old Testament when the scripture uses the word repent. So just the way my mind works, I got thinking, well, I know the Greek root word for repent, but I wonder what the Hebrew root word for repent is. And so I went and looked it up and the Hebrew root word that gives us that concept of repentance in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shub and shub is found well over a thousand times in the Old Testament, and it's used 164 times in a covenant sense. And like you would expect, shub also means a turning away, because that's the sense of repentance. It's a turning away from a previous life. But there's an extra shade of meaning in the Hebrew word shub. Because the root of this word literally means destroy the house. It's an ancient word that comes from ancient warfare. When an army swept in and they conquered a city and they took the people captive. They now have them chained up. They're about ready to lead them away from their village or their town or their city. They're about ready to take them into a life that will be totally different. It's going to be a life of slavery to that empire, to that conqueror. And they begin to lead them away from the house they grew up in, from the village they worked in, from everything they've ever known. 
And the very last thing that conquering army would do is they would set fire to everything in that town or village or city. And they would burn it to the ground. That was Shub. Destroy the house. Why did they do that? Because when you have nothing left to go back to, it is so much easier to move ahead in God. That's repentance. When you repent, you turn away from your sin and you walk away from everything that you've ever known. But it's very key that if your repentance is genuine and sincere, if your repentance is going to be long lasting, if your repentance is going to see you through to the end of God's salvation plan, you need to destroy the house. You need to burn down every connection to that old life of sin. Don't leave the door open so you can go back in a weak moment. Don't leave connections there so that in an hour of temptation, you can be pulled back into the things of the world. Repent in the Hebrew. Shub means destroy the house. Burn down your old life. Don't leave anything to go back to because then it's much easier to move ahead in God, to live for Jesus For the rest of your life. And if you've never had a repentance experience like that, you owe it to yourself to have a repentance experience like that. Destroy the house. Burn it to the ground. Turn away. Walk away from your previous life. And don't look back. When you have nothing left to go back to, it's so much easier. Repentance involves more than just feeling sorry. Repentance means destroy the house. Turn your back firmly and finally on sin. Paul describes this kind of feeling when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And he, he, he talks about repentance in this way. He said, I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. See, sorrow is not repentance. Sometimes people can just feel sorry because they got caught or they got in trouble or they feel like God is uh, displeased with them and they're sorrowful. But feeling sorry is not repentance. Paul said you sorrowed to repentance. See, repentance is not about your emotion. Repentance is about your decision. You don't have to feel any great rush of emotion when you repent. Um, I've pastored long enough. There are people that really feel like, well, if I'm going to repent, what I have to do is I have to weep and I have to wail and I have to moan and I have to make a big scene. I have to do all of that if I'm truly repenting. And I would say it's really far from that because I know people and you've met people that They do that every weekend. They do that every Sunday. They're forever feeling sorry. They're forever coming and saying, God, I'm sorry for what I did. But then they go right back out and they do it again all over. When you really repent, Paul said, you sorrow 
to repentance. He separates the emotion of sorrow from the decision of repentance. Repentance, again, is not your emotional state. It is your choice. It is your decision. He said, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that that sorrow led to repentance. You sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Now here's how he defines repentance. For godly sorrow worketh repentance. If you're truly sorry after a godly sort, if you're sincere and genuine, that sorrow will work repentance. And it will give you a salvation that is not to be repented of. In other words, you'll never want to go back to the things of the world. The sorrow of the world. He said worldly people get sorry. Uh, sinners, they feel sorrow. The sorrow of the world works death. So you can feel bad about sin. You can feel bad about your decisions. You can feel bad about the issues and the problems that you got yourself into. That sorrow in and of itself is not repentance. But that kind of sorrow can lead you to repentance. The sorrow of the world just results in death. You feel sorry, but you keep right on with the same addiction. You keep right on with the same habit. You keep right on with the same bondage. The sorrow of the world, yes, you feel sorry, but since you continue in sin, it works death. But this is a godly sorrow. If you really are sorry, if you really don't want that sin anymore, you don't have to have that sin anymore in your life. If you really are deathly tired of that addiction that is troubling you, you don't have to have that addiction in your life anymore. You can make a decision. See, repentance is not an emotion. It's a decision. I turn away from that. I look away from that. I walk away from that. I destroy the house. I burn down every remembrance, every fragment of that, and I start a new life. That is repentance. He said, behold this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Here's what repentance results in. What carefulness it wrought in you. Now you're careful. You don't want to go anywhere near that sin, that addiction, that behavior, that old relationship that got you in so much trouble. You don't want to go back there. It, re, real repentance will, it, it'll grow a carefulness in you. And then he said, it will result in a clearing of yourself. You want to get away from the things that used to hold you back. And you want to make sure there's no chance of being trapped or ensnared. You want to steer clear of that. He said, what indignation. You know, the greatest attitude of a child of God is the devil had me long enough. He, he tortured me and tormented me long enough. Now I'm going to give him some grief for all the grief he gave me. It's like an indignation that rises up in you against the devil. What indignation that repentance brought to you. He said, yea, what fear. That's a reverence of God. That's a reverence for God's commandments. I, I want to revere this God. I stand in awe of a God that could look at my sinfulness and he could declare me holy because I obeyed his gospel. What fear. What vehement desire. If you truly repent, 
You will want to give God at least as much energy as you used to give the world. You will want to give God at least as much money as you used to waste in the world. You will want to give God at least as much time. You will want to give God at least as much effort as you used to give to your old sinful life. What vehement desire repentance puts in you. What zeal, and this is one So zeal is like that enthusiasm and that excitement in living for God. What used to turn your crank and get you going in the world and you were so excited about it. Now you feel that way about the things of God. What zeal. And finally, I love this one. What revenge. I want to make the devil rue the day that he ever gave me trouble, that he ever ensnared me in sin. I'm going to work just as hard for the kingdom of God. I'm going to work just as hard to make sure other people escape Satan's clutches because I'm going to have revenge on him. Repentance makes you take revenge on the kingdom of hell. Repentance makes you want to undo the devil just the way that he used to undo you your life. Paul said, in all things, you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He said, I can see that your repentance is real because repentance has these characteristics. And he tells them about us, about all of that in such a very powerful, powerful way. We have typically in the church defined repentance by what we feel, but real repentance has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with what you do. You've got to develop a a backbone in yourself spiritually. And this first step, this first component of the gospel message, repentance, you've got to approach it like this. I am so angry at the devil I am so sick and tired of being bound. I'm going to destroy the house. So there's nothing left back there to ever go back to. I am done with sin. I am done with the devil. I am done with the evil things, the sinful habits of this world. I am done. Repentance, brothers and sisters, means to walk away, leaving the smoldering ruins of your old life far in the distance. So in light of all of these beautiful definitions scripturally of repentance, metanoia and shub, a turning away, a turning around, a walking away, destroying the house in light of all of those, could I say to you, I'd like to give you my own little definition for repentance. Repentance means goodbye. That's what repentance means. Not see you later. No, goodbye. Good riddance. Goodbye. I am done with the world. I am done with sin. But perhaps the most exciting thing about repentance for me is that when I repent, the Bible teaches me that I'm putting into action in my life. I, by obeying the gospel, I activate the gospel. And when I repent, I'm taking that first element of the plan of salvation. Remember, it's blood, water, spirit. It's death, burial, 
resurrection. It is repentance, water baptism, and spirit baptism. That's the gospel. It has three elements that work together. And when I repent, I am literally applying the death of Jesus Christ to my life. And I am making it effective in me. I am literally destroying, killing the old kingdom of sin in my life when I repent. Paul said it this way in Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is free from sin. That is the beauty of repentance. I am dead with Christ. And if I'm dead with Christ, I am free from sin. Because the devil can't do anything to a dead man. I am crucified with him. Jesus didn't just die for me. He died as me. If I take his death into my life through this beautiful experience of repentance, I get to die to that old life. I get to die to sin. I apply the death of Jesus to my life in repentance. But repentance, brothers and sisters, is not the end of the experience. You see, People say to me sometimes, well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. I always say, no, that's not the good news. If Jesus just died for my sins, he's still dead. That's not the good news. The good news isn't even that Jesus died and was buried. That's still bad news. He's in the grave. No, the good news of the gospel has to involve all three elements, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Jesus died. He was buried, but he rose again. And in the same way, if I'm going to apply the gospel message to my life, if I'm going to obey the gospel, if I'm going to apply the gospel, if I'm going to experience what the Bible calls being born again, the new birth, then I don't want to leave Jesus on the cross and I don't want to leave me at repentance. There's more to come and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you in our next session. It's been such a joy to teach you tonight. I'd like to pray over you before we leave. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for sincere and hungry hearts. I thank you for this wonderful church family called Eastwind. And I thank you for the privilege of teaching tonight. Lord God, I pray that you would minister and that you would reveal truth to every hungry and sincere heart. Because somewhere there's somebody watching that what they need right now is repentance. Before they take any other step, they need to turn away from some things that you've been dealing with them about. I pray for them that they would have the courage and the wisdom, and the foresight to do exactly that, to repent of sin and invite you in. What a beautiful first step. Let your blessing rest upon us 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.